pastor and author by the name of John Orberg wrote a rather humorous illustration from his own family life to talk about sinful human nature and the need for confession. His daughters, two daughters, Laura was four years old at the time, and his other daughter, Mallory, was uh, two and a half. He writes, and this is going back to the 70s, he writes, we, we bought our first really nice piece of furniture back in those days. It was a pink sofa. But for the money we paid for it, we called it a mauve sofa. Any of you remember those days? Huh? The man at the sofa store told us all about how to care for it. We took it home. Now, since we had small children at the time, the number one rule in our home from that day on became, don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't play near the mauve sofa. Don't eat around the mauve sofa. Don't breathe on the mauve sofa. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit, but on the mauve sofa, you may not sit, for on the day you sit there on, you will surely die. (laughs) But then one day came the fall. There appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red jelly stain. My wife called the man of the sofa factory, and he told her the bad news. She assembled our girls in the living room to look at the stain on the sofa, and she said, girls, do you see that? That's a stain. That's a red jelly stain. And the man at the sofa store says it's not coming out, not for all of eternity. Do you know how long eternity is? Eternity is how long we're going to sit here until one of you tells me which one of you put the red jelly stain on the sofa. For a long time, they just sat there until finally two-and-a-half-year-old Mallory cracked and said, Laura did it. Laura said, I did not. And there was dead silence for the longest time. I knew that none of them would confess putting the stain on that sofa because they'd never seen their mother that mad in their entire lives. And I knew they wouldn't confess because they knew if they did, they'd spend eternity and time out. Ortberg writes, I also knew they wouldn't confess because, in fact, I was the one who got the jelly stain on the sofa. (laughs) And I wasn't saying nothing. He goes on to write, the truth is we've all stained the sofa of our lives somewhere. Somehow our hearts are stained daily, aren't they? Our hands are stained often. Our consciences are stained repeatedly. They're red stains. How will they ever come out? Unlike this frustrated mother God knows all about it already. He knows who did what, when, and where. John will open his discussion in chapter 1 of his first letter that we've begun to study on the subject of stains or sin. And he's going to begin by reminding us that God knows all about it. In fact, we'll pick it up in a verse where we left off with just that kind of declaration. He writes in 1 John chapter 1, and now at verse 5, this is the message that we've heard from him, that is Jesus, and announced to you that God is light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He's a light that's a reference to his personal and total holiness, his perfection, his glory in his person. In fact, Jesus Christ, 
Jesus is the light of the world. He shares the essence of his Father in in that gospel account which resonates with his first letter. You may remember when Jesus Christ pulled back the veil on his own humanity. There on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that his face shone like the sun. And Peter, James, and John no doubt shielded their eyes. And his clothing blazed with brilliant white light. The future dwelling of the believer in the Father's house is a place with unending light. John adds, you notice, not only is God his light, but he he says, in him there is no darkness at all. Now that would be different from the gods of their day. The gods of the Greeks and the Romans, their gods cheated. They lied. They were immoral. They were unchaste. They were malignant toward mankind. They They were quarrelsome with each other. They were abusive. In fact, one author said, whenever men create their own gods, they always end up creating them in their own image. But he says here, our God is different. The true and living God is a God of light. There's nothing evil in him. There's nothing shady in him. There's no deceit in him. James will add, there's not even a shadow of turning, moral, ethical turning, changing. In him, there are no dark corners. There are no moral inconsistencies. He's all light. And guess what light does? It exposes, doesn't it? It exposes everything, which means he is able then to expose all the stains in our lives. He's able to expose the dark corners of our hearts. Now, maybe as I told you that story earlier by John uh, and his mom, Sophie, you might have been thinking, well, all you got to do is flip the cushion over and you get a free pass, right? Oh, God can see under there too. So the question is, what are you going to do about those stains? What are you going to do, not about just the old ones, but the new ones, those new stains that appear regularly? In fact, the greater question will be, how in the world do we ever hope to fellowship with a God of light who exposes everything when we consistently sin? Well, John will answer that question in this paragraph. And in order to help the believer answer that question, this old apostle puts together five different scenarios, all beginning with the little word in or if in the English language. These are five conditional clauses that begin with the letter if, or the word if. So in fact, if you want to just in your Bible circle those five words, they'll kind of serve as the outline of what he's thinking and where we're going today. Each of these five scenarios are going to warn, they're going to encourage, even inspire the believer with the news of what it means to walk with God in the light. And I've put each of these five scenarios into five positive commands that I hope kind of get to the core of each of these conditional clauses. The first one is simply be honest. Be honest. Notice verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. Now some would say, and I've waded through a number of them that would say that John is not 
talking to believers here because it's not possible for a Christian to walk in darkness. It's not possible for a Christian to lie. It's not possible for a Christian to be deceived or practice the truth. And I want to say, I'd like to talk to your wife or your children or your parents or your husband. Oh, Would you notice that John throughout the paragraph refers to we and us? That's not W-I-I, that's W-E. We and us. 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 Now certainly he's going to expose the false teaching of the Gnostics. But he isn't defining in this paragraph justification. In fact, if you come to that erroneous conclusion, this paragraph's going to send you into all sorts of confusion. He's defining sanctification. He isn't telling the unbeliever how to experience sonship by means of your faith. He's telling the believer how to experience fellowship by means of your walk. It's possible for fellowship to be lost, not sonship. It's possible for communion with the Father of light who exposes everything about us to be hindered. Just as my young children might have disobeyed me, and if I knew it at the time, the last thing we would ever enjoy is fellowship. But they would remain my children. You can't be unborn if you've been born into the family. You read the Apostle Paul's own personal testimony of this battle in Romans chapter 7. Listen to him at the end of his life where he says to Timothy, I am the worst sinner on the planet, chief of sinners. Now, while John is certainly exposing some of the teaching of the Gnostics and the Docetists, and we'll pull that out as we go through this, this first warning is written to challenge the believer to get honest with God. In other words, stop living a double life. God knows. He's the God of light. He sees. Get honest about your walk. Get honest about the path of your feet. Get honest with God. The word John uses for walking here, those who walk or walking in darkness refers to moral conduct. The present tense indicates that this person is slipping into this habitual way of thinking and and acting through daily life. What he's saying is if this is how you're beginning to think and act, if if you're being squeezed into the mold of the world, and by the way, it's always trying to squeeze you into its mold, that's why we're told not to let it, because it can, Romans 12, 2. You can't, while you are being allowed to be squeezed into the mold of the world, believe at the same time you're making headway with God. Be honest. He writes in verse 6, notice how boldly, you're lying. We lie, he says. We lie when we think like that. We're, we're pulling the wool over each other's eyes, perhaps successfully. We're not pulling the wool over God's. He writes here, we are not practicing the truth. Good translation. We're not practicing it at that moment. See, there were false teachers who were telling the believers in the first century their body was fallen. It didn't matter what they did with it. It wouldn't hinder their spiritual life at all. John would say to them, that's just a lie. What you do with your body has a direct impact on your communion with the God of light who exposes the sin. So so just be honest. Make sure that what you're doing matches what you are saying. 
To put it another way, which we often say, make sure your walk, what? Measures up to your talk. He moves on to another scenario. Let me pull from this a a second positive command. This one simply says, stay close. Notice, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 6, get honest. Verse 7, stay close. Walking in the light is that, one author wrote, that conscious endeavor to live a life in conformity with the truth of God's revelation. And that will be a daily battle. And when you grow in Christ, the battle doesn't subside. It can grow even more difficult. Now, John encourages the believer in this verse with two different misconceptions you might be tempted to believe. Let me pull them out for you. First of all, this misconception that a transparent life is going to ruin fellowship with each other, that I've got to hide it. I've got to hide it from people. I can't be honest. John says, no, the, the opposite is actually true. Open, honest, Confession, as you walk in the light, exposing your life to the truth of God's light, that actually forms the foundation for fellowship with each other. Did you notice? He in this text doesn't say, now when you do this, you'll have fellowship with God. He actually says you're going to have fellowship with each other. Honesty with God is the basis for harmony with God's children. Now the second thing that a believer might be tempted to think is that if you walk closely with God in the light, exposing your heart and your life to His truth, the truth of His holy perfection, that there might be something that Jesus would find out about that would ruin everything. Again, the exact opposite is true. He writes here that the blood of Jesus Christ is effectively strong enough to cleanse from every red stain. There isn't anything that Jesus can find out about your life as you walk with him in the light and he'll say, oh, I didn't know about that. Or you did that today. Well, that changes everything. No. So don't be afraid to hold your life up to the light. No matter what you discover, no matter what you, you, you honestly see as you walk closely to him, Jesus Christ can effectively cleanse every stain. William Cooper, from a couple of centuries ago, struggled terribly with his Christian experience. and He was the son of an Anglican clergyman who wanted his son to follow in his footsteps, and he didn't want to do that. It created tremendous conflict. He decided to go into law, but then he failed to pass the bar exam. And he was so utterly devastated and angry with God that he threw away his Bible and attempted to take his life. He was placed in an asylum. It was run by a believer, managed by a believer named Nathaniel Cotton. And under Nathaniel's care and the introduction of truth back into his life, he recovered. In fact, it was in that asylum where he was confronted with the wonderful declaration of truth of Paul in Romans 3, where Paul said, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a satisfaction through or by means of his blood. God is satisfied with what Christ did. 
Cooper would go on to write, there was a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. What? Lose all their guilty stains. You walk with God in the light and you're going to have things exposed. The blood of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to cleanse everything about you. Be honest. Stay close. Here's a third command. Simply put, get real. Get real. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, you might think that a Christian would never do that. Well, let me explain what he's saying. The phrase that we have no sin refers to personal guilt. In fact, you might, for the sake of clarification, circle that word sin right over in the margin of your Bible, guilt. It's, it's, it's someone who effectively says, my sin shouldn't make me feel guilty or My sin isn't really sinful. Can you imagine anybody saying that? I didn't think so. Now, the Gnostic teachers in John's day were teaching this very deception, that you don't need to feel guilty about anything. Godly, ungodly, holy, unholy, pure, impure, whatever you do, it really doesn't matter. Sin isn't really sinful, and there's no need to feel guilty about anything you do. So if you want to enjoy life, get over this concept of guilt. It's just going to weigh you down. It's going to make you feel bad. And it's just kind of culturally inbred anyway, so get over all that old stuff. That's as fresh today as it was when the Gnostics taught it in the first century. In fact, uh, one popular advice column I read said this, quote, the first step you've got to take is, is to understand that your behavior is really not your fault. Refuse to accept blame. Heaping any kind of blame on yourself only adds to your stress, low self-esteem, worry, depression, feelings of inadequacy and dependence. So let go of your guilty feelings. John would say, if you start thinking like that, you're actually in trouble. In fact, he says the truth is not in us. Basically, the truth is not operating in our lives. When we say to ourselves... That sin isn't really sinful. See, it'd really be easy to say John's talking to unbelievers. Yeah, go get him, John. Oh, wait, I do this. I can't tell you how many times in ministry I've had people tell me, Stephen, you know what I'm doing and I'm wrong. In fact, I had somebody tell me not too long ago that I was way too black and white on this particular sin they were involved in. In fact, he actually said to me, what you need to do is get out more. John would effectively say in response, no, what you need to do is get real. Stop the wordsmithing. Stop the clever rationale to try and get around sin. In fact, he says, here's what's really happening in your life at that moment. Verse 8 again. It's the simple fact that this kind of thinking leads to self-deception. We deceive ourselves. The verb he chooses for deceive is from the Greek word planao. We get our English word planet from this. The ancients, many of them believed that planets were erratic, wandering bodies. They were wrong about that too. But he pulls that word out of ancient thought that's untrue as well. He says when you start following those things which aren't true, your life becomes this erratic, wandering body. 
So get real. Fourthly, this really remedies everything, frankly. Be honest, stay close, get real, and now fourthly, admit everything. How's that? (laughs) Admit everything. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins. One author said that's the biggest if in a Christian's life. If. If we confess our sins. The word he uses for confess here is a verb that means to agree with another. Literally, to say the same thing about something that somebody else says about it. So what he's saying here, when you confess your sins, you're actually saying what God says about it. You're going to set lying aside, and you're going to say, oh, this is what God says about that. So you're actually taking God's side against yourself. It's not very comfortable, is it? It's like you're stepping out of yourself, and you're turning around, and you're saying, self, I am agreeing with God on that particular action or thought that you're having. I'm agreeing with him that it isn't just a, you know, um, something unfortunate. That it's actually sinful. If we confess. Can I give you a concise definition of biblical confession? I tried to pare this thing down in my study to get as short as I could. It's probably still too long. Confession is admitting that we've disobeyed God and agreeing that we have no excuse. My wife used to put our children, as they were growing up, through the paces of true confession and making apology because it was so easy for kids and it's so easy for us to go, yeah, sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, that's easy to say, isn't it? Yeah, sorry. Next. So she'd stop them. No, name it. What was it? Tell it to them. I am sorry for doing ABC. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? You know how much time that took? That's true confession. And unfortunately, our culture, which has now redefined sin, has nothing to confess anymore. And so, as one author put it, we... What we once called sin is now an array of disabilities. All kinds of evil conduct are identified as symptoms of some kind of disorder. Modern culture has created a brand new gospel in that man is not a sinner, he is a victim. So culture is losing its ability really to to, to be cleansed because it has nothing to confess and certainly no one to confess to. Case in point was a man who was shot and paralyzed while committing a burglary in New York. News article read that he was shot by the store owner who was within his rights, but the attorney successfully convinced the jury that the man was, first of all, a victim of society, driven by economic disadvantages. The jury agreed. The store owner was actually required to pay the man a settlement. Several months later, the news followed up with this. The same burglar, now wealthy and in a wheelchair, was arrested while committing another armed robbery. Another man won a, same, won a similar kind of settlement. He had mugged and brutally beaten an elderly man in the subway and was shot by police while fleeing the scene. He sued the New York Transit Authority. $4.8 million was compensated to him. The elderly man he mugged, a cancer patient, by the way, was still paying doctor bills while the thief is now a multimillionaire. In yet another case, a drug dealer shot and killed eight children and two women at close range and without mercy. Jurors 
were led to believe, and they so decided, that drugs and stress were a, quote, reasonable explanation for his actions. They ruled that he had acted under extreme emotional distress and found him guilty of a lesser charge. And that makes sense in a culture that is removing sin as sin. When you remove sin, you remove guilt, and there's nothing to confess. There's nothing to be guilty of. And this is a downward spiral. You see, it's a lot easier to say, I am a victim than I am a sinner. That's a lot harder to say. I shared uh, something I came across not too long ago with the men's quarterly breakfast. It's great to fellowship with a couple hundred men who came, and I'd come across this and and shared it in a similar vein as we are honest with ourselves and uh, our Lord uh, about a CEO that had been uh, removed by the board. He just, you know, hadn't done a good job. Profits were, were down. New CEOs coming in, the old CEO wanted to help him out, and so he said, look, I know you probably don't want my advice, but, but you're going to need it. And I have pared down my years of experience into three simple statements. And I've prepared three envelopes for you. Whenever you make a mistake need help, go to envelope number one and do exactly what it says, and so on. The the new CEO thought, well, I'll probably never need that. But sure enough, months into the job, he made a a mistake. He called it wrong. It was costly. It was obvious. And he remembered those envelopes. And he went to the drawer, pulled out envelope number one. And it, it simply said, blame me. So he did. He blamed the old CEO. It was his fault. He inherited the guy's problems. He had set the course, and so, you know, this wasn't really my issue. And everybody bought it, and he was off the hook. Everything went along well. About a year later, he made another big mistake. And he went right to that second envelope, envelope number two, and it read, blame the board. And so he did. He blamed the board. He had inherited that board. They were a mess, and they weren't following his leadership, and everybody bought it, and he was off the hook, and everything was fine, and A little less than a year later, he made another mistake, undeniable, costly. He went and opened envelope number three, which read, prepare three envelopes. (laughs) I mean, sooner or later, you run out of people to blame, right? The apostle would say, well, just go ahead and fess up the first time. Admit it. That's genuine repentance, honest confession, nobody to blame but ourselves. And this gets to the heart of our problem. In fact, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, the problem with fallen man is not that we are imperfect creatures who need improvement. It's that we are rebels who must lay down our arms. He says that surrender is called confession and repentance. Now, you might have noticed that John moved from the singular use of sin in verse 7 to the plural use of sins in verse 9, and it is significant. Verse 7 is referring to our standing. That is, we are continually cleansed, and our standing never changes by virtue of the cross work of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 is talking about specific sins that affect our fellowship. The Old Testament sacrificial system, by the way, dealt with this wonderfully. Uh, The Levitical law included both the sin offering and the trespass offering, which you might think are the same thing, but they they weren't, and they had different reasons for being given. 
The sin offering related to the principle of sinfulness, the core of being sinful. The trespass offerings related to specific sins. So that's why you stood in line with your turtle dove on a Saturday. Specific sins. The sin offering dealt with who they were. The trespass offering dealt with what they did. One author put it this way. The sin offering dealt with the root of sin. The trespass offerings dealt with the fruits of being a sinner. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ introduces the same concept with a wonderful metaphor. You may remember he's in the upper room. None of the disciples want to wash each other's feet because that's the role of the servant, and there wasn't a servant for them. And so they were going to eat with dirty feet. Jesus gets a basin, girds himself with a towel, and he goes around and he plays the role of servant. And it's terribly humiliating for these men. They're humbled. They're grieving. They're probably weeping. And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, "Uh uh-uh. You're not going to wash my feet. You're not going to play servant to me. And and Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you will have no fellowship with me. And so Peter responds, well, in that case, give me the whole bath. I'll dive in. I love Peter. And the Lord says something very significant. He says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet and he is entirely clean. John 13. In other words, Jesus is referring to the all-cleansing bath that relates to your standing, represented by God's application of Christ's cross work toward your account. That total, once for all, completed transaction called justification. Cleansing by means of the offering of Jesus Christ for us. Washing Feet, on the other hand, became this metaphor that Jesus would use to represent the ongoing daily cleansing in the lives of believers for what they do. We are not yet delivered from the presence of sin. John says, be honest. We are not yet freed from our participation in sin. In fact, the more you grow in Jesus Christ, guess what? You're going to become more and more aware of how sinful you are. Those deeds, those thoughts, those actions. You're going to thank God that your standing is forever taken care of, but you're going to be mortified over how wicked you are. You're going to go through the day. You're going to say, how how do I deal with these stains? I've flipped that cushion over a thousand times. This is the kind of specific cleansing that John speaks of in 1 John 1, 9. In fact, I want you to notice carefully. He alludes to the cross. He implies the cross work. Notice his promise. If we confess our sins, specifically that get in the way of fellowship, he says God is faithful. What does that mean? He's going to keep his word. And who is his word to? Not just you, but to his son. God the Father is satisfied with Christ's crosswork. And the promise within the mystery of the triune God will never be backed up on. He's going to be faithful to that satisfaction toward you. John also says he's not only faithful, but he's righteous. He's just. Now you'd think he'd say that God is faithful and merciful. That God is faithful and gracious. But he says, no, God is faithful and 
just. He's talking about the cross. He's effectively saying God will not demand a second payment for your sins. He isn't going to see you performing some sin. And he's going to say, well, you're going to take care of that one, buddy. That's yours. No. There's no double jeopardy. All you have to do is confess those sins and fellowship is restored. Say, Lord, I got my feet dirty again. I know I was here five minutes ago, but I'm back. You know what it is like in the lives of little children? They don't think their feet are dirty. They've been playing outside all day long and their feet are green. They're they're, they're soiled. What do you mean my feet are? You grow in Christ and you discover how dirty your feet are. How easy it is to get them dirty. God is just. Jesus paid it all. Means Jesus paid it all. And who is it that finds daily forgiveness and cleansing? And that restoration of fellowship and friendship? It's the one who says, Lord... Um, I'm going to admit everything. This is what I did that was wrong. Will you forgive me? Let me show you quickly one more scenario. And the positive command would be simply this. Get right. Get right. Notice verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Again, his word is not operating within us. Now, in this final scenario, John definitely pulls the mask off the Gnostic teacher who claimed that you could arrive at a perfected, sinless state. John uses the perfect tense here to refer to somebody who actually says, I haven't sinned in the past, I haven't sinned in the present, and I'm not going to sin in the future. See my halo. This denies the Word of God. God says it this way, for all have what? Sinned. You know what the literal Greek translation of that word all is? For all have sinned. Here it is. All. Were you here last hour? (laughs) Listen, the most popular preaching in any generation is preaching and teaching that minimizes the sinfulness of man and exaggerates sort of this blind tolerance of God. If we try to deny that our sin really isn't sinful, and you know what? I'm actually getting better. In fact, I've arrived. I never sin intentionally. I've had people tell me that. Whenever I sin, it's, you know, it wasn't intentional. And not only do we lie to ourselves, but we make God a liar. We minimize what we do. Represented well in the satirical prayers, written tongue-in-cheek by a rather insightful, believing author to represent the average individual's shallow view of sin and the holy character of God. Here it is. Benevolent Father, we have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment, but they're really not our fault. We've made some unfortunate choices due to forces beyond our control. We have sometimes failed to act in accordance with our own best interests and Be true to ourselves. Under the circumstances, though, we did the best we could, and we're glad to say that we're doing okay, perhaps even slightly above average. Be your own sweet self. With those of us who admit we're not perfect, grant that we never lose self-respect, and we ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from you. Amen. 
I mean, that kind of prayer goes nowhere. Boom, 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 boing, boing, right? You go to God like that even as a Christian. You begin to redefine your sin and downplay your sinfulness, your, your sinful acts. And you're going to move through the stages of a lifestyle that will lead you to the porch of discipline because he loves you. You could end up, as John will write in his second letter, we'll get there eventually, forfeiting not your salvation, but your full reward. And one author put that downward path in these terms. Denial, minimization, normalization, rationalization, justification, and celebration. Let me amplify that and repeat those steps. It begins with denial. That's, that wasn't me. Have you ever heard people say that? Well, that wasn't me. Well, who did it then if that wasn't you? Denial. Then it moves to minimization. It really doesn't matter. It's not that big a deal. Then it goes on to normalization. Everybody does it. It moves then on to rationalization. You know, it makes sense. To justification. I think it's the right thing to do. To celebration. You know, you ought to do it too. I've dealt with people over the years in that tragic and dangerous stage of celebration where I just expect the discipline of God's hand to move. They've said to me things like, my life has never been as good as it is now. I know you say that and I know your Bible says that, but you, I am having the time of my life and I know God is pleased. My friend, it's one thing to lie to yourself. It's a far more dangerous thing to make God a liar and his word untrue, which is what we do when we refuse to acknowledge our sin. This 80-year-old apostle, I want you to picture in your mind this gray-haired man, long, probably white beard, grabbing us all by the nap of the neck who are bound up in this kind of thinking and simply saying, get right with God. Get right. You're only penalizing your joy and binding your heart. And Who do you think you're fooling? He sees those stains. When you allow your life to accommodate them, make a design out of those stains so it all just kind of works together. Unrepentant, unconfessed sin. We end up being the loser on every count. Richard Hoffler, in his book on uh, the miracles of Jesus, wonderful little paperback. I couldn't find mine and ordered another one, found it on Amazon, out of print, written 30 years ago. It arrived yesterday. He told uh, the story, and I'll close or nearly close with this, about Jimmy, a young boy, who, along with his older sister, were spending a couple of days visiting their grandparents. And while they were there, the grandparents gave Jimmy uh, a slingshot. I have no idea what grandparents are thinking when they do that. Just give them matches and gasoline while you're at it, okay? Here, burn the house down. But they did tell him to play, you know, with it in the woods behind their house. And I've had a slingshot as a kid. Uh, what fun. He took aim. He'd let these little stones fly. He never hit anything he aimed at. 
unfortunately. But on his way home for dinner, Hoffler writes, he cut through the backyard and saw his grandmother's pet duck. He took aim and let a rock fly into his shock. The rock hit the duck in the head and instantly killed it. Boom, dead. The boy panicked, of course. In desperation, he took the dead duck and hid it behind the woodpile. And as he turned to run into the house, he saw his sister, Ashley, standing over by the corner of the garage. She had seen everything. You guys have had sisters, huh? Brothers do it too. She didn't say a word. They walked in, ate dinner. After dinner, Grandma walked into the kitchen and said over her shoulder, Okay, Ashley, let's clear the table and wash the dishes. And Ashley hollered back, Grandma, Jimmy said he wanted to help you in the kitchen today, didn't you, Jimmy? (laughs) And she said to him, Remember the duck. (laughs) Later in the day, Grandpa called the children to go fishing. And Grandma said, I'm sorry, but Ashley can't go. I need her to help me get supper ready. And Ashley smiled and said, Well, Jimmy actually told me he wanted to help with dinner tonight. Isn't that right? And she mouthed to him, Remember the duck. This went on for several days. Jimmy ended up doing all the chores for both he and his sister. Finally, he could not take his imprisonment and his guilt any longer. So he went to his grandmother and confessed it. To his utter surprise, his grandmother took him in her arms and said, I know, I was standing at the kitchen window and I saw the whole thing. She went on to say, because I love you, I was already willing to forgive you several days ago. And Jimmy, I would have never again mentioned the duck. I couldn't help but add a few lines here to our thoughts that the thief of our joy, the enemy of our soul, the lion who will trouble our hearts and our consciences, will persist in whispering, never forget. Don't forget. Remember the duck. Peter, remember the rooster. Thomas, remember your doubts. The rest of you guys, remember you abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour. Don't ever forget that. You know, it's interesting that Jesus Christ wants us to remember certain things, but not those. In fact, he tells us that he has chosen to remember them. No more. The record of sin as it relates to our standing and individual sins that we confess, we can walk away knowing he's forgotten. Be honest about your sin. Stay close to the Savior. Get real about the direction of your life. Admit everything. Get right with him. 
lest you waste your life messing around with what binds you. And shock of all shocks, when you come clean, if you haven't yet come for that bath of salvation, God stands ready. Maybe for you it's today. If you've had that bath of justification, but your feet have gotten dirty, God stands ready to wash your feet in that sanctifying process and he cleanses your conscience and he straightens out the steps of your path. He has a way of washing those red jelly stains away that nobody can wash away. No one else can. But he washes them away and then chooses not to remember. Shouldn't we thank him? Let's do that. Father, thank you for both the sin offering and the trespass offering. Thank you for the bath and the daily cleansing of our feet. Thank you that the blood of Christ, your Son, on our behalf is both comprehensive and specific. Thank you that you you tell us how to walk with you in the light. And, And that way begins with that word, if. If. Maybe you've never answered the issue of a bath. You know enough of the gospel to lay down your arms and surrender as a rebel sinner to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you alone. You can do that right now. Maybe you've gone for some time without fellowship and you know why. Your feet are dirty. Specific sins come to mind. Admit them. Confess them. Not just a quick sorry, Lord, but no, here's what I did. I was wrong. Forgive me. Do that now. I want to close with a declaration of our faith and our joy. An old hymn that came to mind as I was thinking about how to wrap up this service. Let's, let's sing this out together. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but